How old are the kids? Mine are um, 11, 13, and 16. Three boys. Oh, my God. You were up to the same sort of naughty business about the same, on the same day as I was, by the sounds of things, because mine are 11, 14, and uh, 16. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I find it. What are you it, doing um, on the 3rd of January, 2010? I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, what if our technological progress is not linear? What if it's exponential? What will the world look like in 10 years, and do we have a say? My next door neighbors are building a new house, and this has been the soundtrack of my life for the last few months. Sawing, drilling, hammering, so much hammering. According to the US Census Bureau, it takes seven months to build a house, and it seems to be taking twice as long in our corner of Long Island. But in Austin, Texas, they figured out how to build a house in less than a week. It's all thanks to a five-ton machine and a 30-something lay minister turned entrepreneur. We are just doing something that is barely this side of science fiction. That's Jason Ballard, the co-founder and CEO of Icon, the first company in America to secure a building permit for a 3D-printed home. The five-ton machine, it's called the Vulcan. It's 46 feet wide and 15 feet tall. It looks, as one observer put it, like a gigantic soft serve machine oozing out neat lines of concrete. It's controlled by an iPad, meticulously adheres to a digital blueprint, needs only three people to operate, and it's capable of pouring the foundation and building the walls of a two-story, 3,000-square-foot house in just a few days. Robotic construction is absolutely our future. This is a complete transformation in the way that we approach sheltering ourselves, in the way that we approach building. If only my neighbors had known. They could have spared me this months-long headache. So far, Icon has raised more than a quarter of a billion dollars, sold a few homes in Texas, and constructed a 3D-printed housing development in Mexico for families living in extreme poverty. Now the company has partnered with one of the nation's leading home builders to create the largest neighborhood of 3D-printed homes in the country. When a reporter for Axios announced the 100-home community, he wrote, 3D-printed cement houses are about to take off, offering a cheaper, more efficient way to provide homes for those who need them. And a lot of people need them. The U.S. faces a housing deficit of 5 million homes. So it's a heartwarming story. Guy wants to be a priest, but realizes he can do more good by becoming an entrepreneur, establishes a radical new technology to squeeze out durable, low-cost homes, solves America's housing crisis, and we all live happily ever after, the end. But my reading is a little more cautious. To me, it's a reminder of how quickly our world is changing. A hundred years ago, fewer than 1% of U.S. homes had electricity and indoor plumbing. And now, Icon has plans to 3D print a colony on the moon. On the positive side, it's not so scary to imagine that the headache-inducing sound of construction in my neighborhood and in yours will soon be replaced by giant 3D printers quietly extruding new homes. 
But what happens to those clamorous construction workers? Are they permanently out of work now? And what about the cultural shift? Ask any child or any adult for that matter to draw you a house and they'll probably draw a rectangular building with a triangular roof, not some curvy 3D printed thing with walls that look like rows of buttercream frosting spiraling up the side of a cake. Are we ready for a world that looks and feels radically different? There's no stopping the acceleration of technological progress, which is exciting and unsettling, but we can change how we respond to it. And the question of how we do that is at the heart of a new book called The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. It was written by our guest today, Azim Azar. New technologies, Azim says, are emerging and growing at an unprecedented pace. If you plotted it out on a graph, the curve of their development would be exponential. But our economic systems, cultural norms, and political institutions evolve linearly. They just can't keep up. We already see the consequences of this every day. The systems we've established to protect our privacy don't work so well in the internet age. Our existing labor laws prove to be pretty clumsy when we apply them to new kinds of gig work. If we don't move quickly to close the gap between runaway technologies and slow-moving institutions, we could be in pretty big trouble. I've known Azim for 20 years. I'm an avid reader of his newsletter, Exponential View, and a fan of his podcast of the same name. He's a big thinker, someone who's comfortable talking about policy, technology, economics, science, history, just the kind of author we love here at The Next Big Idea. I reached him at his home in London, where he was able to carve out a little time to chat before running off to get a much-needed haircut. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Azim Azar, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Rufus, it is such a pleasure to be talking to you again. Indeed. Remind me of when we, we first cross paths. We would have uh, met in the mid to late 90s when you were had set up Nerve uh, magazine or webzine, uh, which was, uh, I think, it's sort of a dating and sort of sex tips, amongst other things, journal, I suppose, a precursor to something a bit like Vice, maybe in some ways. Uh, and I was working as the internet correspondent at The uh, Economist. And so I was often trying to figure out what was going on. And, and, you know, we met then and then secretly as a, you know, lonely man in my mid-20s, I was reading Nerve to learn about um, how to get on with the dating game. Well, my mother who listens to this podcast will be uh, not delighted to be reminded of my sordid past <laughs> with Nerve.com. But yes, no, that, that those were wonderful days. And, and Stephen Johnson was running Feed Magazine. And of it was, course. you know, what was interesting was that, that we had we had the sense within the early internet days that this was a, a new kind of printing press that made possible new kinds of um, pamphleteers. You know, I mean, the, 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 our, our first instinct was was to take advantage of the medium for arts and culture and and that's changed quite a bit. I think people we people now forget actually just how fun the internet was in mm. 1994, 95, 96, becoming a publisher yeah. yourself or discovering some quirky new uh, experiment. And you, you look back on them and they seem so uh, so naive, but it was incredibly refreshing back at the time. Azim, you begin your new book, The Exponential Age, by mentioning a lecture 
that the British scientist and novelist C.P. Snow gave back in 1959. In that lecture, Snow warned that intellectual life was being split between two factions, I think, right? On the one side, you had the scientists, and on the other, you had artsy Oxford graduates who looked down their noses at technology. And Snow's view was that between these two cultures, there was a gulf of mutual incomprehension. And you say that gulf has only gotten wider. Today, we have technologists on one side, the engineers, the people who work in Silicon Valley. And on the other side, there's everyone else. And it strikes me, Azim, that you are just the man to help bridge the gulf of mutual incomprehension because you were one of those artsy Oxford grads. You edited one of the university's newspapers and its student magazine, but you're also a tech guy. You founded four tech companies and invested in more than 30 startups. You're a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Futures Council. Since 2015, you've been running the highly influential newsletter, Exponential View. And you host a podcast of the same name for the Harvard Business Review. I say all that first and foremost, Azim, to flatter you. We like to, we like to soften up our guests. But also because I really do want to know, do you see yourself as a negotiator between these two cultures? My life is entirely about uh, negotiation, uh, Rufus. Uh, thank you for that uh, introduction. I, I joke that I'm a Libran, um, and for those of you who are into your astrology, the Libran Libra is the scales, the the one that tries yeah. to find a, a balance. And I was also the youngest child uh, in a uh, family of five with two much elder sisters, and so uh, would always find myself in a kind of attempting to be in a in a peacemaking role uh, and i had a peacemaking role in school as well uh, so i've always found myself as someone who was a bridge and i think because my interests spanned from science to history and technology to politics in my career i i found myself as the the one person who could talk to the people in the marketing department and the people in the technology department and understand them and, and perhaps take their message over to the other side. Uh, and that's, I think, why I, I, I felt more comfortable writing a book that is a book that attempts to bridge these two different uh, domains uh, than focusing 100% on, on any one aspect. So interesting about your background. I didn't know that about the, uh, the birth order and, the, and, and the, the instinct to bridge divides. Because I also see that in your work between, in, in the divide between kind of corporate cultures and startup cultures. And, and then I also see it between the techno-optimists and the pessimists. Because among other things that divide these two groups, there may be an ocean known as the Atlantic. I, I, I was interested to discover that the subtitle of the UK version of your book is how accelerating technology is leaving us behind and what to do about it. Meanwhile, the subtitle of the American version, the US version is how accelerating technology is transforming business, politics, and society. It seems like two ways of looking at the same phenomenon. It is exactly uh, two ways of looking at the same uh, phenomenon. And it isn't just a, a transatlantic divide. When I look at the the reviews of the book in the uh, you know the mainstream press. Some have painted me as a pessimist, and some have painted me as an optimist. Uh, and, and I think that in a way that's a sign that I may have achieved what I set out to do, which was not to you know, offend everybody, but rather to help identify just how complex and nuanced this discussion needs to be. And and that has been, I think, perhaps one of the things that I've been I've been happiest with uh, has been 
that there have been different interpretations taken of the book because I was hoping to move past a narrative narratives of technology that are either you know prototypically utopian uh, or dystopian. I wanted to to present something that was somewhere in the balance, something a little bit Libra and that was a bit pragmatic and complicated and needed to be navigated and negotiated. Well, I, I too am a Libra, um, although I didn't know my sign until I was in my late 20s. I was very proud of the fact until somebody told me what it was. <laughs> but it does apply because I, I have the same instinct. Although I've always thought that we live in a world that's changing. And as you point out, and this is sort of central to the thesis of the book, the pace of that change is accelerating. It, it's always struck me that being a friend of change is a good life strategy when you're living in a world in which change is inevitable. <laughs> right. If you register, right. if you register change as traumatic, you're kind of in a pickle. And, you know, obviously we need to learn to accentuate the upsides of change and mitigate the downsides, which is what you're doing while investing in tech startups and also in parallel uh, helping governments and companies, you know, mitigate the downsides. I, I found the book extremely exciting and, um, and hopeful. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think it is uh, a hopeful book because what I wanted people to do is understand that there is a a fundamental shift that is that is going on, and, and I'm not saying this with with excitement left or right. I'm saying that if you you look at what happens in complex economies with increasing levels of of education and, and more interconnections, you will see these patterns of of acceleration in certain areas. So in a sense, I'm saying, look, it's going to go and rain and you can decide whether you want to dance in the rain or get an umbrella. And giving you that choice of dancing and getting the umbrella is the positive message. It is a sense that you can have some agency around this. But but I should say that in that presentation, I'm not saying that technology is deterministic. I'm not saying that, you know, these there are inevitabilities about the way technologies act and every word processor that could have been produced would have been like Microsoft Word or every social network would have been like Instagram. Because I think that those are design choices. Those are choices that we as the people who create the technology can uh, can take and we can shape it in those directions. But I am saying that there are some fundamental things that are going on in the way our economies operate that point towards this acceleration. and. If we are going to then make sense of it, it, a really, really reasonable strategy would be to say, how am I going to deal with the change that, that is coming? And if we think of an exponential curve of a, of a hockey stick, we might be right at the point where it's about to go vertical, which is exciting and, and, and perhaps alarming, which I think is a great segue to big idea number one. We're at a transition point. Now, I've been involved in technology for 25 years, although my background uh, in education was in the social sciences. And starting about 2015, after I sold my last company, I spent time exploring a number of different technologies and looking at how they were turning into products and services and ultimately into companies. And I came to a conclusion uh, during this research, during this discovery, that we really were at a transition point uh, across advanced economies, across our societies, one that was being driven by a number of broadly applicable general technologies. 
Those were the technologies of computing, which many of us are familiar with, with the ever-marching power of our smartphones, but also in the realms of biology, where we're able to take the approaches and disciplines of engineering and apply them to the human genome, to the way in which we create proteins, to starting to get microorganisms to make new materials for us. I also saw trends in energy, where the cost to produce energy from renewable sources like solar and wind was declining precipitously. And in tandem, the cost of energy storage in the form of batteries was also getting cheaper and cheaper, promising that we would have affordable tools of clean, renewable energy today or very soon. And a final area of technology, that of manufacturing, where new techniques, 3D printing or additive manufacturing, which are hitherto contained in small niches in our industries like aerospace and automotive, were improving dramatically year on year, getting cheaper and better, and so are on the cusp of becoming everyday parts of our industry. Now, the interesting point about these four technology areas is they're broadly applicable across our economies. But more than that, they are improving exponentially. And by that, I mean they are improving by more than 10% on a price-performance basis every single year, year after year, compounding those improvements, and often for many decades historically and for many, many, many years to come. The impact of that is a tremendous reduction in the cost of these fantastic capabilities. And with those that reduction in cost, we're going to start to see a ubiquity of these approaches across our economies and societies more broadly. All right. Well, why don't we start, Azim, by, by blowing people's minds a little bit about what exponential technological progress is likely to mean for us in the next 20 years? I mean, I, I think a lot of us have this sort of vague sense that, you know, tech is exciting and maybe a little bit scary. Things are changing. I'm not sure that the average person on the street necessarily believes that the changes coming in the next 20 years are likely to be even more powerful and, and perhaps also more disruptive than the last 20 years. Why don't we start with, with computing? We've mm -hmm. all been on this ride together. 1960s, you know, Gordon Moore, as co-founder of Intel, came up with his famous law. Moore's law states that the number of transistors you can pack onto a circuit will double every two years. At that time, the dentist microchips held around 2,000 transistors. Apple's M1 Max chip, just introduced last month, has 57 billion transistors. Is this pace going to continue, and, and what do you think are the implications? Well, uh, I mean, it, it is mind-blowing, and the numbers still uh, befuddle me. People, for a long time, the last 10 or 15 years, people have said that the the rate of improvement of silicon chips or, or the availability of computation, I think it's helpful to think of it as the availability of computation, uh, would have to slow down because the way that the process that Moore's Law described was one of miniaturization. You would take these transistors, yeah. and they used to be in the 19, late 1950s, about the size of a, of a fingernail, and you shrink them down, and they're now uh, the size of you know nanometers, so not quite a bit, a bit bigger than sort of atom scale, we would say. And so for for twenty years, people have been saying, "Look, Moore's law, this relationship, descriptive relationship, will come to an end, and computation will start to 
not get cheaper and cheaper. What we actually found is that the reverse has been the case. So even though it's got harder to make more and more miniaturized chips, other techniques have shown up, whether it's uh, what's known as new architectures, so new ways of designing the chips, uh, whether it's new applications. And they have delivered incredible improvements in computational capacity. The one that's been most uh, interesting has been uh, what we call artificial intelligence. We've got this new artificial intelligence wave that started in, in about 2011. And these mm -hmm. algorithms need so much more computational power than anything we've had before. And between 2013 and 2018, the state-of-the-art AI algorithms demanded 300,000 times more computation. That's much faster than Moore's law can provide. And yet the computer industry was able to figure out chips that were faster and faster and faster that were just optimized for those AI tasks. And so we've actually, in a way, gone faster than Moore's law as far as a machine learning developer uh, would care as fast as, as far as a company would care. And as we look out uh, 20 years, I don't think there are many reasons to believe that we would slow down. In fact, what we've seen is the rate of progress in what we can do with chips has sped up somewhat. You talked about the new Apple chip, but more importantly, the AI developers are becoming more and more demanding. And it's that ballet between the demanding user, the AI developer, and the willingness of the industry to innovate and figure out how to meet those demands that creates a really important flywheel that, that should drive us forward even faster. And I think all those building blocks are in place. And, and then, of course, we have the, the Hail Mary card, which is the, the new technologies of quantum computing. Quantum computers literally use individual atoms resting in undetermined quantum states called superpositions to perform calculations. And quantum computing, you know, has its own limits uh, in terms of what it can be applied to. But the early results about of quantum computing, again, have me scrabbling for my thesaurus to find, you know, whatever word, number comes beyond quadrillion. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure what it is, but <laughs> quantum computers are from what we've seen so far in their small scale, quadrillions of times faster than traditional quantum computers. I mean, I talk of a, a test that Google did with a very, very yeah, primordial yeah. quantum computer back in 2019. And it did a particular task in 200 seconds, and it would have taken a normal supercomputer 100,000 years. So that is the, the scale wow. of the, yeah. the, 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 the shift. Let's talk about energy. I found this very yeah. hopeful. In the last decade, you say, the price of electricity generated by solar has declined by 89% just in the last 10 mm. years. The price of wind energy has dropped by 70%. You say no other form of electricity production can compete now with these renewable energy sources. Coal plants no longer make sense. That may also be true soon of natural gas. Do you think this pace of progress will continue? And what, what are the implications of this? I would expect it to continue, especially with solar photovoltaic, those shiny cells that turn sunlight into electricity, because they have many of the similar properties to early silicon chips. They're all about miniaturizing circuits on a, on a silicon substrate. But it's already having a significant impact in the market. I mean, one of the, the key things is that because in 
nearly every part of the world. It is, I mean, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, who studies these things, it's every part of the world. You're better off from a cost perspective creating a solar or a wind uh, based electrical system than starting up a new coal plant or a new uh, natural gas plant. And that means that the decision on the investment side is much, much more straightforward. And one of the things that we've seen that should give us a lot of hope is that what's known as the cost of capital, the price that a developer needs to pay on the the, the capital they, they borrow to build uh, a power station, has really bifurcated. Um, and in fact, it's 15% per annum cheaper on your interest payments to build a solar or a gas plant than it is to build build a coal plant. And so not only is the coal person having to sell more expensive electricity, they're paying much higher finance costs in order to do that, which really then crushes their margin, right? And crushes their opportunity mm-hmm. uh, in the market. And that I think should make us feel a bit optimistic. And and then you you know you also say that um th- that we may be moving towards a world with effectively free energy, right? I mean, that there might be such an abundance of energy at such low costs that it, it fundamentally changes the the playing field. How, how does that affect the way the world functions in you know out a few decades? You know, the secret is that it's it's all about energy, uh, and it's all about uh, the laws of thermodynamics and the idea that uh, in a closed system entropy always increases, uh, and we have to spend energy to reverse those processes. Uh, and so, whenever we look at an industrial uh, process, we we th- often throw energy into it to to get it to work, and and that means that when we want to create nitrogen based fertilizers today, we have to use lots of temperature and lots of pressure at a great energy cost to squeeze nitrogen in the atmosphere out and smush it with hydrogen to produce ammonia. And all of that is expensive, and it's expensive from the perspective of the carbon dioxide we put in the um, atmosphere. When we move to a world with essentially free energy, it becomes close to free to get over those laws of thermodynamics. And we can start to do things that we we don't do because they're thermodynamically expensive. And I'll I'll give you two or three examples. So one example would be um, how we produce hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen is an amazing fuel. It's incredibly clean, but there isn't much of it naturally available. So we either have to produce it by reforming methane, which um, puts out quite a lot of CO2 in in the atmosphere. That's not good. Or we do it through electrolyzing uh, water, which is you know H two O, and and that gives us hydrogen and, and oxygen. Very benign, very useful. Mm. The trouble is that electricity, clean electricity, has traditionally been too expensive. So clean hydrogen has been too expensive to use as a an energy storage medium. But if the price of electricity continues to fall, as I expect it will, it will mean that clean hydrogen could become abundantly available as a as a storage medium. I mean and that's just one example but if we even think about things like cleaning up waste mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. and pollution and, and and so on that is something that is that, that currently we go off and we bury it because to mm-hmm. reverse the chemical processes and get useful materials out of waste uses a lot of energy which is expensive once energy is free well it becomes a little bit like um, i don't know if you remember mr fusion the thing that was on the top of the delorean in the second oh, episode yes. of back to the <laughs> yeah, future yeah. marty you've got to come back with me where back to the future Wait a minute, what are you doing, Doc? 
I need fuel. I mean, it's not Mr. Yeah. Fusion, but it's a bit like that. Yeah. We can take our old banana skins and egg cartons and, and turn them into useful things. And because the energy is free and it's also renewable, we're doing it with a, with a zero carbon footprint as well. Why don't we talk about synthetic biology? I, I, that, that's, that was extraordinary to me. That we're, You talk about turning microorganisms into little factories to make biopolymers, I think like plastics that are biodegradable, I guess, and, and even right. electrical components. People say that as much as 60% of the physical inputs of the global economy could be produced biologically by 2040. That's, that's pretty stunning. It's it's amazing. It, it I love this area. I uh, I didn't understand it for years. I just I have, was fortunate to be able to speak to people who really knew what they were talking about, and eventually, um, it started to make sense to me. We know that there are incredible things that um, exist in nature, whether it's uh, salicylic acid, which is a natural uh, chemical that turns out to become aspirin, which, uh, is it called aspirin in the US, by yeah, the way? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, which becomes aspirin, great for headaches. Or you think about spider silk, which is not just beautiful, but incredibly strong and incredibly light. These are remarkable properties that, uh, of, of materials and, and chemicals that have evolved through this process of evolution over, over you know hundreds of millions and billions of years and they're done with such great elegance and you compare that little house spider uh, as she spins a web producing a silk that is m better than any polystyrene or polyester material that we might produce industrially and you go to where we produce those things mm. and essentially we are exploding hydrocarbons in containment units in big industrial plants and it's it's ugly and it's toxic and it's polluting and it uses so much energy so there is this elegance in nature and the promise of synthetic biology is that we can learn to harness that elegance and we do it through a set of exponential technologies from the ability to read the genomes of different uh, living things figure out which genes could be responsible for expressing a particular protein, which means sort of expressing the thing that turns into the spider silk or the transparent film or the, the, the therapeutic. Then we need to be able to use another exponential technology to synthesize those genes. And we get these artificial genes that we then need to you know, insert into the appropriate microorganism that can then go off and brew and produce the, the, the product that we want. So it's really, really complicated. So you have to bring all of these exponential technologies from the, the ability to read genes and write them and insert them and engineer uh, cells, the ability to use machine learning to figure out what combinations could work. Because this is biology and it's not deterministic, it is, it is um, you know, a systems problem that, and a bit, a bit probabilistic. You don't necessarily know what is going to express well in the yields that you need. So you have to run lots of experiments. And these synthetic biology companies now have robotic wet labs. So rather than getting grad students to run one experiment every couple of days, they, they run hundreds in parallel. And, and, and that's after having run millions of virtual experiments in simulation. Wow. And at the end of it, hopefully, you come out with an answer that allows you to, with the elegance of nature, produce that therapy that you want or produce that material that you want. And, uh, you know, I've looked at the forecasts for this um, 
my uh, I have some some sort of friends in the McKinsey team that come up with the forecast and they reckon it's you know, a $4 trillion business by, uh, you know, 2030 or 2040. And, you know, I, I really hope that they are wrong. I mean, I, I just, I think it could be so much bigger uh, than that. And this this reminds me of, of 3D printing, right? Which is another, right. you know, huge, huge category of innovation. You say that the 3D printing market grew 11-fold in the last decade, a pace of 27% year over year. In the next decade, we're likely to see performance improve 14-fold with prices dropping. You have a friend who printed the world's largest 3D printed object in 2019, a 2,500 square foot concrete building. It took 17 days to build using 75% less concrete and was built with unheard of precision. So what, what what do we have to look forward to here? Well, um, I'm so out of date. In the exponential age, that the gap between sending a book to press <laughs> and things being, uh, you know, extended even further is is you know just it, everything gets transformed. You know, 3D printing is improving at about thirty percent um, per annum um, on a price performance basis, and we are seeing people. 3D print components of houses or large parts of houses. And, and in fact, there was recently a, a story in the Wall Street Journal about 3D printed rapidly constructed homes in, in Austin, in Texas. I think the key thing here with 3D printing is that it's a very generalized uh, technology and you can you control it with the same types of software. You can use lots of different types of feedstock. So you're seeing people 3D print with artificial meats and artificial fish proteins so that you you have this sort of cruelty-free, sustainable meat that is available. You're seeing people, um, you know, this is, I guess, more for the, the chill-out crew, 3D printing with uh, with cannabis um, in, in, in other ways. Uh, we, we're getting people 3D printing with discarded wood to create high-end interiors for cars. So you take the kind of waste wood and you smush it chemically and you turn it into a feedstock and out comes what looks like a beautiful walnut that you pop into a high-end car. Uh, and, and I think that that's quite a uh, remarkable shift. The, the challenge with 3D printing has been that compared to mass manufacturing processes like casting or molding, it's just really expensive if you need a million of something, right? If you need a million of something, make a mold and just kind of pour the metal in there and, and, and so on. But you know, true exponential form at quite large numbers now, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of copies. 3D printing is cost competitive with those traditional molding or casting processes. And it's that's really nice because it's a much more sustainable process, but it still allows that personalization, uh, which, you know, gives a little bit more delight, right? Because the sneakers fit you just perfectly because your left foot's a bit smaller than your right foot or vice versa. But it's really, really early days, I should say, Rufus. I mean, we, we should be under no uh, illusions that 3D printing has not had its iPhone moment yet. Mm -hmm. But we could also feel cautiously optimistic that it might. Which is really difficult for most of us squishy homo sapiens to fully comprehend. And that lack of comprehension is at the heart of Azim's second big idea. He'll share it right after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. Azim Azar's first big idea is that technology is accelerating exponentially. And the problem, he says, in his next big idea, is that our institutions can't keep up. There is an exponential gap between the potentials of these technologies and the linearity of our everyday lives. So on the one hand, the technologies are exploding. They're creating these future potentials. They're creating new, fast-moving, aggressively expanding companies that are changing the nature of commerce and work and the organization of cities. But on the other hand, in most well-functioning societies, we rely on formal and informal institutions, whether it is regulations around cars or employment laws or the way we think about tax or the laws that govern how corporations should behave. Or perhaps it's just informal customs and habits that just make life easier for us to live. The challenge is that those institutions, whether formal or informal, tend to evolve at a very, very linear rate. And because they change at a linear rate, they get out of step with the realities of the exponential technologies. And I call that gap between this accelerating upward curve and this linear flat curve, the exponential gap. And the exponential gap is the thing that underpins so many of the tensions that we see between these fast moving technologies and the companies that build them and the way in which we have sort of run our societies up to now, whether it's in markets and industries and questions of market dominance, or whether it's in the field of work and how well workers can be treated, whether it's in trade or security and conflict, or perhaps most presently in what happens to our democratic fabric and our ability to act as citizens. These tensions can be traced back to the exponential gap. It's a useful analytical tool for us to understand, diagnose, and ultimately fix these issues. When we think about we as humans just process all this technological change and adapt to it and respond to it, I I think about this amazing graph in your book that shows how long it took different technologies in the U.S. to go from 10% penetration to 75%, right? For for Mm -hmm. electricity and the automobile and the telephone, it took over 50 years to get from that kind of 10% penetration to 75%. For the cell phone and internet, it took a little over 20 years. For social media, it took 11 years to reach seven out of 10 Americans. For the smartphone, I think it was about eight years. So smartphones reached 75% market penetration, 12 and a half times faster than the original telephone. And, And this has implications, both economic and political implications, but also implications in terms of how it impacts our own personal psychology, our daily habits, our culture, our behavior. It's a disorienting time, isn't it? I think it's really disorienting. Uh, And it is something that the technology industry itself hasn't been um, empathetic enough in the language that it's used Mm -hmm. uh, around the the changes that that, that are happening. Uh, We are not well constituted for 
dealing with uh, change that is as quick as this. And uh, by which I mean that we we just are not able to make good predictions about where these uh, these curves will will go. I, I, you know, most banally, many of us start saving for our pensions or our four hundred one ks far too late in life. I mean, yep. given the power of compound interest, we should start with the very first paycheck we get, not the day before our 50th birthday. So we we don't grok uh, what exponential change does in the first order. And what's challenging, as you've so lucidly pointed out, is that the second and third order ap- applications of that change can be so much further away. I mean, who knew that by giving people unlimited computing power in a portable device, the smartphone, we would end up using it to look at pictures of cats and get into arguments with strangers. I mean, that's not (laughs) what you would think in the 1950s unlimited computing power would give you. And that's what it's ended up giving us. And so so this this is sort of psychologically very difficult for us to deal with. But it's difficult for a second reason, which is that much of the world that we live in is is livable because of conventions and habits and laws and institutions mm-hmm. the the fact that you know which side of the road to drive on when you are in the US and and I know which side of the road to drive on when I'm in the UK that is a simple convention that makes life livable and survivable and our institutions are predicated on the circumstances that were around when they were created. And so they don't necessarily adjust as quickly as we we need to in this exponential age. And so we have this this challenge, you know, we as individuals are, are not well constituted to contend with the first order change, let alone the downstream implications. And for mm-hmm. me, the exponential gap is the point that sits between the optimism of the power and the abundance of these technologies and the dystopianism Mm -hmm. of things going wrong. Because in short, Rufus, I think what what happens is that because of this gap, there ends up becoming a shift in power from the rest of us towards the handful of people who can best maximise the the new potentials. Mm-hmm. But it's not a simple shift in power. It's not like, you know, my Ford franchise beat your Ford franchise in Poughkeepsie, New York. And I, you know, I'm now the one who's bought the bigger house. It's much, much more fundamental than that. It is, it is about a battle for how our societies get structured, what our economies look like, what our industries look like, what does work look like? Does our democratic politics work at all. And and so from this little thing, this, this this misunderstanding of what the implications of this exponential change will be, arise these much, much more systemic challenges. And, and for me, figuring out how we close that gap is is an absolutely sort of key part of the puzzle. Let's let's talk about those super what you call superstar companies, which it's just extraordinary what's happened, right? With Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, to, to, to watch companies worth trillions of dollars growing at 20% year over year, 30% year over year, it's just unfathomable. 
for decades now, people have been, the conventional wisdom was Apple can't possibly keep growing at this rate, right? They're about to hit the headwinds of scale. And it just hasn't happened. And th- that assumption that these companies were going to hit headwinds was not irrational. As you point out, in the 20th century, large companies very consistently slowed down. They maxed out at maybe 40% market penetration. Somehow, these new companies have broken the constraints of gravity that have limited the growth of large-scale companies for centuries. Why is that? I find this amazing. I mean, it is a remarkable shift because I grew up learning the economic orthodoxy that said companies can only get so big. And the, the real, you know, the, re- the reasons are that in the, in the olden days, in the 1990s, companies were dependent on inputs and inputs would get progressively more expensive. That millionth kilogram or pound of steel that you bought cost much more than the first pound of steel that you bought. And that's just what happened in the market. And the second thing that happened was that your business would get more complicated. Uh, It was just, it became bureaucratic and sclerotic. And, And so as the organization got larger, coupled with rising input costs, you created space for a competitor to come in and slice off a bit of the the market. What happens in the exponential age is that companies look like um, something that we call platforms, which I'm sure many listeners sort of have heard have heard that word. But the heart of the being the platform is that you benefit from something called a a network effect. And the network effect is simply this that every additional customer benefits all the previous customers. And, and, th- and that's why a dating service like Tinder is different to an airline. No one goes onto an airplane and is delighted to hear that it's oversold and you're going to be sort of elbow to elbow the whole way through. You're actually delighted when you're told, oh, you're so lucky, Mr. Griscom. No one else booked this flight and you've got the whole thing to yourself. That's not how a dating app works, right? A dating app is is a disaster. Um if it's just you on your own, right? It's better that it's oversold and overcrowded. And that is the the network effect that is at the heart of, of platform companies. And it turns out that exponential age companies in many, many guises end up using network effects on top of their platforms, which means that as they get bigger, they become better reasons for more customers to use them and they'll get bigger still. And when I think about back to the early start of the research for this book, which was in 2016, I remember a dinner that I had in a very upscale London hotel with a with a set of wealthy investors. And, and there was no company that was worth more than five or six hundred billion dollars. And I, I said, you know, are these companies overvalued. And pretty much every person said, yes, they're overvalued. And there was one person who sort of said they're overvalued, but I can imagine them getting up to six or seven hundred billion dollars in in market capitalization. Here we are five years later, where many of them are worth more than a trillion dollars, and Apple and Microsoft are worth more than two and a half trillion dollars. And somehow they have broken the rules of 20th century business. And they've done that because the rules of 21st century business, the rules of business in the exponential age, are actually just different. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Azim tells us about the implications of that rule breaking and what we can do about it. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. 
Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Welcome back to the show. So Azim's first big idea is that we're at a transition point. Emerging technologies are about to fundamentally change the way we live and work, how we power our homes and offices, how we solve problems and build new things. His second big idea is that there's a worrisome gap between those technologies and the institutions that should, in theory, regulate them. Now in his third and final big idea, he says, we can close that gap. We can close this gap. Now, I think it's quite hard for us to look at the pace of technical development and come in and somehow slow it down. I mean, I argue in the book that the reason these technologies develop as fast as they do is really a function of having a modern complex economy where the engineers and the entrepreneurs and the scientists learn from their experience and respond to the signals in the market. So at one level, the pace is almost set But there are things we can do because technologies are artifacts. They are designed and created by people, and we are those people. So if we are able to understand how they develop, understand how they progress, start to think a little bit about their second and third order impacts outside of the narrow sphere of technology into society at large, we can actually start to shape their direction. We can start to allocate resources appropriately, direct the power of this river of innovation into ways that we might find being more helpful. But it's also important that for people who are not necessarily in the technology industry to have the tools to ask the right questions so that they can participate either as customers or consumers or citizens in this emerging question, this emerging challenge of how do we govern the potentials of all these technologies. Forrester predicted a few years ago that 25 million U.S. workers could lose their jobs to automation by 2027. Meanwhile, you cite some Oxford academics who say that as much as 47% of the U.S. workforce is at risk of redundancy. Uh, It's a painful word due to machine learning. Meanwhile, on the other hand, you say historically our economies have become more automated and historically employment levels have tended to increase. Um, I get the sense you're not as concerned, Azim, about an actual decline of jobs that are available as you are concerned about the growing gap in the quality of jobs that are available. Is that, is that right? I am definitely worried about the, uh, the quality of jobs that the majority of the workforce can expect to access. And I'm, I am also concerned about what happens in the short to medium term when we go through a, a transition. And, and the reason I'm concerned with, with those aspects is that history has shown us that that time and again, dramatic new technologies like uh, early mechanization has, for reasons of of power more than anything else, tended to favor the providers of capital. And in the 19th century, uh, the British economy, the English economy grew very, very rapidly. But workers' wages didn't keep up. And it grew rapidly because of mechanization. And it wasn't until the turn of the 19th to the 20th century that the force of the organized labor movement 
created enough political will to adjust that. And that 50 or 60 year period was known as the Engels pause. Um, after Friedrich Engels' analysis of what was going on, it was a time that really, apart from the providers of capital, you know, Charles Dickens did very well because he wrote many, many novels about this gap, about poor workers living in terrible conditions while the country got richer and richer. So those are the things I think that we need to uh, worry about right now. In the same way that we can't really imagine what happens at the end of exponential changes. We also can't really imagine what sectors of the economy will grow and the extent to which they will grow. I mean, try to explain to someone living in the Plymouth colony in the mid-17th century what an auditor does or what a yoga teacher does. It, it doesn't make any sense, and yet it makes great sense to us today. So I feel that we will create new types of work, new types of jobs that will be hard or impossible to automate. But before we get there, we'll be people living real lives with a sense of, of fear, of losing their livelihoods, of losing their sense of, of, of worth, of losing their purpose. And those are the things that I worry about. There's a possibility, I think, that that I, I've become very interested in the implications of blockchain and what might be coming down the pike in terms of solutions to both distribution of wealth and how technology is impacting distribution of wealth. I was fascinated by your conversation, Azim, with, with James Courier, uh, the venture capitalist at NFX, about um, decentralized autonomous organizations and how they could potentially create more competitive kinds of network platforms that might rectify some of the concentration of wealth problems that, that private networks have, have created. This is potentially powerful because more and more businesses that used to be traditional B2C companies are becoming networks, from retail to delivery to publishing platforms. Let's define some terms here. Blockchains are networks of computers capable of making commitments based on shared code. They can make commitments to scarcity, such as there will only ever be 21 million bitcoins, or contractual commitments, such as this piece of digital art or NFT is owned by Azim Azar. And decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs for short, are new kinds of organizations that are governed using blockchain. I think that uh, we are at the cusp where we get to in some sense, decide the shape of the, the future. And that something like blockchains and decentralized uh, autonomous organizations could form part of that uh, because they they do, in a sense, extend the, the, the framing of democracy to uh, new realms, right? To how we allocate resources amongst other things. But we need to also understand that those technologies are very, very hard for the wider public to access right now. And they are growing in ways which have attracted certain type of person who, who can understand how they manifest themselves. So against the, the potential, which I think is significant, is also the caution that legitimacy comes from some sense of informed participation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm these things are still quite niche and they're extremely powerful and they will be 
framed by the people who are out there framing framing them. So the good news is that that I think it, there are technical solutions to some of these issues. The worry is, can we get a broad enough conversation around them uh, before they get set in stone? Mm-hmm. And and the the hypothetical kind of new structure, if I understand it correctly. Uh, you and James talked about a uh, like a, a hypothetical Uber competitor called Kuber, right? And, and, right. <laughs> yes. and, and I th- and, and if I understand it correctly, the the notion here is that with these decentralized autonomous organizations using the blockchain, one could create a competitor to Uber, right? That would compensate both drivers and passengers in part with tokens, which would effectively be equity or ownership in this new company. And you'd also have to structure it so that drivers were paid in local currency so they could make a good living. And and such an Uber competitor could operate with close to zero profit margins. So hypothetically, drivers could be paid better. Passengers would have an incentive to use this new service because they would have more upside as well. And so if this proves to be a more competitive model, right, you could end up with future Ubers and Facebooks and so on that are actually owned uh, very meaningfully by the people who use them. Is that is that uh, is that the idea? That is absolutely the idea. And in fact, there is a great example uh, in uh, Bangalore, uh, Bengaluru in India called Drife, D-R-I-F-E, uh, which is set up uh, exactly in that in that way. There is a Drife token, and the the Drive token it will ultimately have some value and you'll be able to exchange it for another cryptocurrency like Ethereum or Solana or into USD or some other sort of traditional fiat currency. And the the code within that blockchain will determine the pricing. There will be incentivization schemes for loyalty, both of the riders and the drivers. And there will be I th- and I think the thing that many people don't understand around blockchains, this idea of open governance. So it's a highly de- democratized. Mm-hmm. Everyone who will host, hold a Drive token will be able to vote on key decisions or delegate that vote to somebody they, they trust. And so we are starting to see those types of things emerge. And, you know, you know the nice thing is because we, the drivers and the riders, are the shareholders. We essentially funnel the profit back to us right at the beginning through the pricing and the, the mm-hmm. cut that mm-hmm. the that the platform takes of of every ride. So we we are starting to see those things uh, emerge. And one of the things about the story of technology, um, Rufus, that that again that you and I sort of have lived, is that. What seems incredibly complicated and difficult, and so you have to rely on a big centralized organization to do through technology can often become really, really cheap and smaller groups can do it. And a simple example from our publishing days is that desktop publishing turned magazine production from something that only Condé mm-hmm, Nast mm-hmm. could do to something that, that you know you and I could do for a couple of hundred bucks. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think it's, I mean, obviously we're going to have to be very careful as, um, as individuals and as, uh, you know, communities and as countries to be smart about how we regulate these uh, businesses and manage technology in our lives. 
Um, but I find it I find it very hopeful to think that there may be some new models that are emerging that could be alternatives to this sort of profit maximizing trajectory that we've seen for so many of these large companies for for decades now um, that have that's had the result of just ever greater concentration of wealth. Uh, so I am cautiously hopeful that the blockchain and decentralized autonomous organizations could could be part of the solution. I'm also very interested in what the implications are potentially for network-based governance. And, and, you know, when we think about how we're organized in these, uh, in the United States anyway, in, in states and countries, you, you point out at one point that the cities are really where, are, are really the central organizing principles of this exponential age. Do you think that, that, that the way we think about the governance of cities needs to evolve? Well, I really think the governance of cities does need to evolve because we're an urbanizing species and uh, every advanced economy sees this agglomeration of people in cities and it's through large populations in cities that we see the specialization of labor that ends up driving up wages. And then to finally cap it all, the environmental costs, both carbon and, and others of cities on a per capita basis are far lower than people who don't live in cities. And so there is a, I think, a really strong arrow that points to the growing power of, of, of cities for figuring out both the, the local conditions of their inhabitants, but also tackling aspects of climate change. Um, but that's not necessarily reflected in their ability to access the full resources of the state, because cities in many cases, don't really have tax raising power and they are reliant on a national government. And in many countries, and I certainly know it's the, the case in the United Kingdom and the case of the, the US, the, the way that sort of voting works is that the urban dwellers vote counts for less uh, in, in the sort of final tally than the person who lives in the, you know, in, in the countryside. And there was a uh, you know, a, a negotiation in the case of the US back in, uh, you know, the 1780s uh, around the relative power of, of states over cities and, and states within, uh, you know, the overall power structure. And, and we've been a bit more haphazard in the UK, to be fair. But we need to understand that the, the power of those cities and how they are going to be continue to be the dynamo of, of progress. And I think in the emerging world and also in China, people have understood the power of, of the city. I mean, you know, China is building these megalopolises of 75, 80, 100 million people connecting huge cities together with high-speed rail and creating these sort of integrated yet differentiable economies that will be able to benefit from agglomeration effects and sustainability effects in quite a directed way. And, and of course, the, the, the structure of that politics is very different to what we have in the UK or the US but we need to find some way that you know enables cities to to meet their their potential. I, I think America is slightly ahead of the UK in, in in all of that anyway, because mayors tend to have a little bit more power than they do um, on this side of the Atlantic. I, I loved your quote from complexity scientist Jeffrey West, who I love, who says cities are one big positive feedback loop, growing, creating more jobs, improving people's lives, becoming more attractive, and growing more. Well. Azim, thank you so much for taking time out of your startup investing and writing of books and newsletters and raising of children 
to be with us today. Uh, we, uh, we so enjoyed the conversation. I absolutely loved it. And I'm just going to say that two decades uh, has been too long uh, for us to leave in between our conversations, Rufus. So I hope we have a chance to chat again. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Um, thank you so much, Azim. Have a, have a great haircut. My pleasure. Thank you. Would you like to hear not three, but five big ideas from the exponential age? Of course you would. Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Azeem's BookBite. And don't stop there. In our app, you will also find 12-minute audio summaries of other brilliant new books, a new one every single day, mind-blowing e-courses, and Zoom discussions with our curators, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Daniel Pink. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like this show, leave us a review and a five-star rating. It really helps us if you think we've earned it. Follow us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. Thank you, Azim Azar. I highly recommend his newsletter, Exponential View, which you can find by following the link in our show notes. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.